Thank you for listening. I'm Mike Flum, President and COO, Credit Risk Monitor. I'm here with Jerry, my co-host and our CEO. And today we're going to focus uh, in our inaugural podcast on some current macroeconomic trends that we think are critical for trade credit and procurement professionals, including debt, uh, inflation, interest rate forces, and uh, how those are going to affect your company, as well as kind of uh, how we've seen other customers of Credit Risk Monitor, you know, start tweaking their policies. So uh, just for a little context, we've been in business for uh, over 20 years providing trusted financial risk assessment solutions uh, to B2B corps. Uh, our customers include over 35% of the Fortune 1000 plus thousands of other businesses around the world. So uh, please join us as we dig in on these topics and uh, what we perceive as the you know, effective responses as well as some success stories that we've, uh, we've received from clients along the way. So uh, if you do have any questions that you'd like Jerry or me to answer or suggestions for future topics, we do invite you to email us at podcasts at creditriskmonitor.com. And with that, why don't we dive in? So Jerry, uh, let's start with a topic that's near and dear to your heart. Obviously, there's been a pretty monumental rise in non-financial corporate debt around the globe. We've talked about it quite a few times on webinars and also in content pieces. Stratospheric rises in the U.S. domestic market, certainly around the world, and there's a big focus on the junk-rated leverage loan portion of that market. But it's been mirrored across the uh, across the world in Europe and Japan and China. So uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that as a starting spot, and then we'll uh, maybe discuss how that is impacted by inflation and then maybe interest rate responses. Okay. Well, uh, you hit it on, and I hit a nail on, on the head for me. I, I view the single most negative thing that we're all facing is the astronomical buildup of debt all over the world to levels that have, in absolute levels, never been seen before. But as a percentage of GDP or whatever other metric you care to use so that you can trend this and see it in relation to, to history. This is the widest, most largest debt bubble in the history of man. And it's important to understand why it occurred, because uh, these things occur actually uh, once every couple of thousand years. Uh, so they're pretty rare. And on this one, uh, there is a natural inhibitor to increasing debt levels for either humans uh, themselves, but certainly for corporations and for governments. And the natural inhibitor to prevent more and more debt being issued is interest rates. In other words, the cost of the debt. Uh, the natural predator to prevent incremental debt is higher and higher interest rates as people who have the money start to stop having money available to loan to people. They charge more for what they got left. And then the second thing that happens is normally as more and more debt is taken in, the risk of default increases or the risk of repayment by the lenders starts to factor in more and more. What's happened this time around, however, is there's been an artificial on-scale implementation by governments or central banks all over the world to artificially restrict the rising of interest rates. And so when you take that natural predator and you nullify it or reduce it, 
that the, the response is going to be more and more and more debt. And that's what's happened. And so this debt is very, very large. And people can afford to carry this large amount of debt because they're paying artificially low interest rates on the debt. The governments of the world are out there and they're buying or guaranteeing all kinds of debt by whoever issues it. And they do it in a very interesting way. They stand in the marketplace ready and willing and able to buy anything and they will buy it. And therefore, they eliminate or lower the risk that the lender has. Now, the implications of that are pretty severe because if this occurs and it is occurring, it eventually leads to increasing inflation. In other words, as inflation goes up, the lender now gets paid back in dollars that are worth less. So what normally happens then is the lenders start to charge more interest. And that's slowly starting to happen now in the world where the lenders are now beginning to perceive that not only do they have the risk if the government stops buying everything under the earth to to keep rates low. But the second part of it is going to be, what are they going to buy it with? What unit of currency are they going to get back? And so as inflation goes up, they're going to charge more. That's going to make it really difficult for all of the people, corporations, governments, and individuals who have gone out and built up a huge amount of debt. In particular, we at Credit Risk Monitor, and I hope the audience that we're speaking to, we are really intimately concerned and have followed corporate debt. In other words, we're interested in what's happening to the corporate lenders, or excuse me, the corporate borrowers, as they borrow more and more debt, and they are now at record levels. This is going to cause enormous risk at the corporate level. And that's where we get credit risk starting to exponentially explode. And we don't believe what we can see that very many people really appreciate the size of this risk and the amount of damage it's going to do. To that point, though, I mean, when you're talking about a you know a specific company right now, you know, being able to issue you know junk rated, high yield rated, obviously in, in some cases debt at very low interest rates seems incredibly attractive at this point in time, right? I mean, in that period where we were at very low interest rates, you're able to generate a lot of cash for projects for what have you, with very low interest expense potential. And in some of these cases, I mean, you're seeing bonds that are, you know, three, four, five years long. So I guess I'd be interested to understand, you know, that obviously sounds like a financier's dream. If you're the CFO there, you know, you can essentially fund a lot of your, uh, a lot of your expansion plans, a lot of your, you know, receivables, anything like that using this market. So I'm just wondering, you know, from that standpoint, obviously it increases the leverage on the balance sheets, but you kind of alluded to the fact that it gets more concerning as inflation mounts and you see interest rates go up. You know, that obviously, I guess, creates a refinance risk. But, you know, at the same time, a a critic will say, listen, cash balances are as high as ever on corporate balance sheets, right? So I guess I'm just wondering, you know, from the practitioner standpoint, if you're a trade creditor or you're, uh, you know, a a supply chain uh, manager or anything like that, what does this truly mean for you in terms of your counterparty? Well, I look at it maybe a little different, Mike. I, I do think there is a certain amount of cash on the balance sheets of corporations, but counterbalancing that is a record amount of debt. So you have cash, but you have to pay it back. 
because you have debt on your balance sheet. So you can take this money, the cash, and you can pay it out in salaries. You can pay it out in, uh, I don't know, travel and entertainment. But at the end of the day, uh, you need to pay that debt off. You're going to need that capital. And the debt now is pretty excessive. It's uh, just staggering. The problem is going to be they're going to, and what they've historically been doing is refinancing the debt or reliquifying your balance sheet. And what that means is when you have debt at, at the corporate level, somewhere uh, as a percentage of GDP, somewhere in the neighborhood, I guess, is 60 or 70 percent now. That's a huge amount. Normally, it's in the uh, much lower areas, uh, 10, 20 percent of GDP. So uh, the debt is really large. And now it's large all over the world. And so as interest rates start to go up, the wherewithal to pay or refinance is really dependent on the stock market. In other words, for public companies, as opposed to private companies, if their stock is selling at two times book, uh, then they have an opportunity to possibly sell some stock in the stock market and take that cash and reliquify their balance sheet. However, if the stock market comes down, uh, then all of a sudden that avenue goes away and goes away very quickly. And so this whole game is interrelated and can't be, and one should not forget that. Stock markets right now are two and a half, three and a half times GDP. This is world record high levels. So the contraction that could happen in the stock market when you look at whether it's return on dividends, return on book value, uh, price time sales are beyond anything anybody's ever seen before. This downside is on stock markets is very real and it can evaporate an enormous amount of wealth. If the stock market is two times uh, or three times GDP and it goes down 20%, that's if it's three times GDP, that's like eliminating a wealth equivalent to 60% of GDP. You know, it gets evaporated. People think they're wealthy. Corporations think they're wealthy. And all of a sudden, wow, they're not. So they're going to start to curtail their expenditures. They're not going to buy as many shirts. They're not going to buy as many cars. They're not going to make uh, buy and expand their plans. They're not going to hire people. So this wealth contraction at the stock market is enormous. However, that's only half the story. The debt part is somewhat around two and a half to three times GDP now. And it's at very low interest rates. So there's nothing, to, the government can't cut interest rates anymore and try and goose up and let people borrow more. They're already at record lows. That's never happened before. They've eliminated that ability to have high interest rates and the government comes in and tries to liquefy this contraction. So they cut rates. Well, you can't cut rates if they're already one or two percent. If they're not eight or nine, if they're eight or nine, you can cut to five, you can cut to four. They're one or two. You got two points before you go negative. Where are we going to find more people from Mars who are going to lend money to people provided they pay them back less than, than they lent them? You know, I mean, like, where do you find people? Hey, take a dollar. You just got to pay back 95 cents. To that point, I mean, you're already seeing that response with inflation taking off, right? I mean, we, we did say we were going to spend a little bit with this, but Germany... 10-year bond rate finally got out of the uh, negative interest rate zone. So that's uh, yeah. pretty staggering considering I think it's been down there since, what was it, 2019 or so. So 30 months or so. Uh, 
And actually, Michael, if you think out loud, what's the real argument for negative interest rates from a government? In other words, where do you get really negative interest rates? Hey, take a dollar, only pay me back 95 cents. Who are you going to lend money to at a dollar if they promise you back 95 cents? I'm certainly not going to lend it to some company or some person who I think has got risk because I'm only going to get 95 cents if everything goes great. So that's not something I want to do. The, the entities that are issuing this negative interest rate debt are large governments in Europe and Japan and what have you. And the reason why are they're, they're able to, to, borrow, uh, to lend at, uh, or excuse me, borrow at negative interest rates, their guarantee that they're going to pay back the lender 95 cents is backed by an army, a navy, an air force, a marine corps. So they're not going out of business. So I know I'm going to get my 95 cents back. My argument for lending them a dollar is I believe that 95 cents is going to buy a dollar 20 of goods and services. And there's another word for what that event is. It's called deflation and depression. So right now, out in the world, down from $18 trillion of negative interest rate debt by very smart entities all over the world, it's now down to $10 trillion because they're betting on a depression. This is very sophisticated money. So while we have a lot of people, including myself, frightened to death about rising inflation, there is also another big argument backed by very, very smart and, uh, and well-paid and uh, entities around the world who are saying, look, man, we see a depression. So if I'm somebody at the credit function in a corporation, I have two huge differences. Either one, if it comes about, is a catastrophe for my uh, credit function in this corporation. Either one. And so I... Uh, I got to tell you, this is uh, a, a very interesting time for people. And my own personal belief is that, God Almighty, while before this game gets out of hand, I want to have in place some processes on how am I going to monitor my risk at in, 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 for a corporate credit manager will be the risk of getting repaid or getting repaid in a timely manner. Um, I, I need to really now put in place a system that allows me to stay on top of this, because when this thing hits, uh, it's going to be uh, out of sight and at the speed of light, and it's going to be worse than anybody has ever lived through up to now. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point to make, right? I mean, unfortunately, one of the uh, noticeable psychological effects of uh, you know, feasting credit markets is obviously people start to relax their risk tolerances, et cetera. Um, so, you know, once you get into that sort of a situation, the due diligence and the uh, the oversight of that tends to pull back. You know, it's much harder to fight with somebody on the sales side about issuing a trade credit or uh, taking on a potentially risky supplier uh, in those sorts of conditions. So I think you, you hit the nail on the head there as far as getting policy together. You know, just as an aside to plug some of our stuff, you know, whether you use credit risk monitor or not, getting data inbounded, you know, that allows you to kind of support some of these decisions, whether it be, you know, forward predictives like the Frisk score uh, for public companies 
or you know anything else that's out there in the marketplace. It's nice to have that information, but you know, to your point, what you do with that information within decision making about how you modify terms, how you change, you know, how much cash down, how long you're willing to extend uh, credit for, all those things require you know many more discussions at the credit group level, at the CFO, Treasury level. Um, and so getting those things all ducked in a row um, kind of needs to happen before you're really confronted with a situation where you have to, to, to implement them. You know, for us, is uh, you know, we uh, have a special kind of service. We allow uh, our subscribers and even our trials to send in unlimited, send us in all your a list of all your customers or your trade file. And we'll input this stuff and we'll show you who we're following. But in order for us to do that, you know, it takes a lot of people for us to input it and a lot of time. So, you know, God, I'm asking, you know, take advantage of this incredible offer and send some stuff to us. There's no guarantee. You know, you don't have to uh, uh, become a subscriber, but we'll show you what we can cover. Our scores are powerful. I mean, they're 90 on public companies all over. We're 96 percent predictive. And we have been now for 15 to 20 years. We have great data and we now cover an enormous amount of private companies with a pay score. So, it, you know, I um, I just think I think it's important also not to make this into a selling plug. But, no, you know, one, right, of the, I, one of the other new products we've rolled out just recently was um, a European private company financial enhancement. Right. So. You know, we're, we're talking about these sorts of things in nebulous terms on a macro level. But, you know, think about Germany, for instance, where you do have the bond market, you know, finally coming out of that negative zone. Uh, obviously, yep. their, you know, their junk uh, issuers have been able to benefit from extremely low uh, interest rates. And that allows companies, I mean, to kind of limp along. You know, we just expanded coverage in that particular area, cover now 10, uh, 10 euro, euro countries, including Germany. Uh, up to, I think, 9 million new businesses with, you know, private company Frisk scores on about two, uh, 325,000 of them, Z double prime scores on about a million one. But to those points, right, as these sorts of uh, interest rate increases, you know, kind of roll out, those junk businesses that have had access to, you know, very cheap credit for a long period of time, uh, and in many ways, haven't necessarily done the investments or the projects that generate rates of return enough to make up for those refi risks when they don't have interest. You know, you know talk, we'll talk uh, about this in another uh, another yeah. section on zombie companies. But you know, I, I remember reading maybe back in late 2000, there was something like a report out of Germany that close to 20% of their, you know, their financial, their non-corporate financials were non-financial corps were uh, were you know having struggle to cover interest coverage, right? Um, yep. So I think that's a serious thing to look at in the sense of, you know, number one, we're, we're spending a lot of time and effort to expand that coverage to give people access to all this stuff. And that's going to be part of that, you know, data match that you talked about. But on a, on a more basic level, you know, like if you don't have a policy for dealing with, for instance, European privates, uh, you know, you, you need to get in, in front of that now, because as we've seen, you know, interest rates are going up or will be going up, you know, in major economies. You've already seen it in uh, what is it, England, South Korea, New Zealand, Brazil, certainly, you know, 
I think everybody was expecting Turkey would start raising with the way that uh, the lira is kind of falling apart. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I, obviously the U.S. were expecting it in March. Um, I would expect that the ECB is probably going to have to follow suit at some point in time. Otherwise, they're going to risk capital flight. Yeah, uh, this is going to happen. And uh, again, I think it's uh, one of the wonderful things, the investment guys uh, who you got to love on how they market uh, these really tons and tons of really uh, companies in severe trouble. So when they sell the, the debt, the loans and the, and the bonds from these companies to the general public or to the investment community, they are referred to as high yield debt. But when they talk among themselves, they refer to it as junk. <laughs> and uh, that's what it is. Uh, you know, this is junk. You, do, people aren't going to get paid under normal times. Junk bonds are from companies that are going out of business. And right now, there's billions and billions of dollars of this stuff. And the whole marketplace for junk is uh, at the public marketplace is going to probably double or triple in size because all the uh, bonds or companies that were slightly higher than junk because they're so over leveraged as soon as this thing starts they're going to fall into the junk mathematic you know uh category and so this is uh you know this is like a train wreck waiting to happen and it's just going to go ba boom ba boom ba boom ba boom and by the way I, i'm not talking like all of a sudden you know i got a special book or a telephone call from somebody like my god this there's enough data that if you spend the time looking at it you can see that this has happened before the only thing different this time is this is the worst that's ever happened in in the recorded history of mankind that's the only difference we're past every single prior ugly top we've been able to run past it this time which means the reaction and consequence to it will be equally as bad now look i think the thing, Michael, is not, we're not trying to scare people. What we're trying to say is nobody knows when this is going to hit. I can't tell you the magic day, the magic hour. I can tell you that the probability of it hitting gets higher and higher every day. And at some point, the roadrunner is running over the side of the canyon, and he's not on terror, you know, he's not on hard surface. And at some point, he looks down and realizes he's not on terra firma. He's over this canyon. And the I fall, think you mean Wiley Coyote there. But but yeah, you know, that's, that's clearly, uh, you know, when, when do you look down and realize that uh, you've been, you know, off the cliff for quite some time? Or, I, I, it's not about scaring people with a FUDS type situation. It's really just more about, you know, being prepared. As you always like to say, you know, it's very hard to uh, figure out how to shoot your gun while you're taking volleys from the enemy, right? You gotta have to have that trained in before you uh, you go to war. You want to make sure you go to boot camp before you hit Guadalcanal. I agree. Uh, that's the deal. You know, it's uh, it's just a, a uh, you know an event where people are just going to have to uh, pay attention to the trends that we're on. They're not good and. Um, and um, we 
we all want to get prepared before they ring the gong. And that's what we're asking people to do. Spend some time, think about it, and you know, look at your customers or look at your suppliers, look at those balance sheets, take a look at cash flow in relationship to interest payments. If cash flow is negative and not there and they have interest payments and debt, you know, our frisk scores are going to pick this up. And we, we crowdsource risk managers all over the world, whether they're getting concerned. We have all this data we can show you. In advance. Now, we're not telling you you just stop doing business with those companies or you don't buy from them or you don't sell to them. We're saying you start to make some adjustments. Maybe you don't go out 230, net 90. Maybe you go out 215, net 30. Or you say, you know, a quarter. You know, when I look at our subscriber base, which is the largest corporations all over the world, they are making adjustments on how they issue trade credit. Um, you know, th that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how do you, uh, on some level, uh, you know, get prepared, you know, get, get your ducks lined up. And under normal circumstances, uh, you have time. Uh, this time around, the time has run out because it could happen tomorrow or it could happen next week. But it definitely is going to happen. And that's the real problem that we see. And, uh, you know, human beings have a tendency, once it starts to get going, everybody tries to get through the door at the same time. And everybody believes that they're smarter than the next person because they're going to get to the door earlier. And it turns out that that rarely ever happens. And so um, that's the human experience. And uh, like I said, under the circumstances, uh, debt on the levels we're looking at, plus rates of inflation, uh, where they are now, are, are boy, that's a mixture that's a time bomb, an absolute time bomb. Yeah, and, I mean, getting uh, back to a specific example, right? I mean, one of the other things that I think is so interesting here is if we do talk about Germany, for instance, obviously it's a you know, heavy export economy, right? Um, so when you do get into this sort of situation where, you know, potentially the ECB starts increasing interest rates, right, uh, obviously that should, I guess, support the currency somewhat, right? Um, yeah. But, but they're still pricing their goods in, you know, euros to that point, or, you know, if, if the eurozone happened to fall apart, I guess, marks, right, if we go all the way back, not, not to say that's going to happen, but... You know, that also has a dramatic impact on exports in the sense of, you know, if your currency is actually worth more than a, a currency, let's say, like the Brazilian real, right? It's harder to sell BMWs into Brazil. Um, so I think that could have another impact here in terms of, you know, cross trade for goods. You know, Michael, uh, what happens is if interest rates in America remain below interest rates in Germany, and both countries are dealing with inflation. Uh, if American interest rates are low, then money, and there's a huge amount that the governments have printed, is now going to shift to Germany, where they can get higher interest rates. That's going to force your, the German currency up. If they force the German currency up, it makes it hard for the Germans to export to America if it goes up in relationship to the dollar. Conversely, it means Americans can export into Germany 
at a cheaper price because their dollar is um, is uh, lower. So uh, currencies and interest rates are joined at the hip. And they impact the ability of countries, manufacturers, and uh, services to sell in other marketplaces overseas. And at the same time, it allows competitors from other countries of the world, depending on the currency relationship, uh, to uh, more easily sell into a, com- a country. So this eventually ends up being a political issue when it starts to get more and more out of hand. And one of the ways for uh, our subscriber base or credit and risk guys, uh, you want to monitor this. You, you, you really want to monitor because what happens is countries then have a political problem because if their currency is too expensive or too weak, it impacts the job growth inside their own country. So they need to react politically, and that's called tariffs. Tariffs are the last part of the game. That's the political economic response. That's when the the equivalent Congress and Senate or the House of Representatives and the Senate of our country and other countries say, like, my God, the unemployment's too high. We need to shove a tariff on here or something. So when you start seeing them start to screw around with tariffs, which is happening, if you think about it around the world, you are beginning to see everybody's getting concerned that we're getting down this road. And tariffs, there's no coming home when the tariffs start, guys. That's the condition pressing into a depression. World trade will contract on scale. And uh, if you do that, um, you know, that's a real problem. I'd like to say one other thing about debt that I think everybody should understand. As you get into debt, it's exciting. Growth is stimulated. After all, what's GDP growth for a country? It's population growth. We have more people. We got to build more Buicks. Second thing that grows in economy is that we learn how over time to get more efficient so we can make more Buicks with the same amount of plant and people. So that's the second goal. The third thing that drives growth and by far the biggest is incremental debt, because what debt allows uh, to happen, if I go and borrow, if I can't buy a car because I don't have enough savings, or I don't have enough income coming in, if I can go borrow money to buy that car, I am now no longer in the marketplace for a car three years from now. I've taken that future purchase of the car three years from now by getting debt to buy it. Now I've moved it forward. I've been able to buy that car now by borrowing money. So incremental debt is what drives really incremental economic growth because population is growing uh, and actually it's starting to contract in many countries, but it's growing roughly 1% a year and uh, efficiency, which takes millions of decisions all over the world, grows at roughly 1% a year. So the real driver, if you want to get GDP growth up to two or three or four percent, is incremental debt. Well, right now in the U.S., the incremental debt to produce an incremental dollar of GDP now is taking roughly between three and four dollars of incremental debt to produce an incremental dollar of GDP. Look, guys, that is not a good number. 
you know, your mother and father probably explained to you a long time ago, you can't borrow, keep borrowing $10 and take a dollar and put it in a savings bank. You're going to run into, you're going to, you're going to go out of business or you're going to go bankrupt. That's just raw math. And that's where we are. And those numbers are available all over now. And so our guys got to start paying attention to this. Too. We're on a, on a trip and they need to get prepared for it. And, uh, you know, there's there's a limited amount of preparations you can do, so you better do whatever the heck you can. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, we're kind of coming up on time here for us, but uh, you know, I think maybe the best way to close this out is to leave our uh, our listeners with maybe some uh, some real tactical summary and kind of points on what to do. So, I think uh, you know, just as an overall summary, number one. You kind of got to understand your exposure, right? So uh, understanding, you know, what your exposure is to public companies, to private companies, to various geographies, uh, certainly important. As Jerry alluded to, you know, that's something that we at Credit Risk Monitor uh, are willing to provide for free as part of a data match. Uh, so we can tell you kind of where your, your exact file falls on our coverage. Um, so I would definitely encourage if you haven't done that, uh, come to us and ask us about it. We certainly would love to give you that as a, you know, account breakdown. If you aren't inclined to do business with us, that's also fine, but we definitely encourage you to understand that exposure uh, so you can kind of start to craft your policy. You're saying it right. If we can't follow for you and we can't monitor, you know, X percentage of your uh, uh, revenue at risk for non-payment or late payment, then, you know, you should go to somebody else and God bless you. We will help you. Uh, but we're going to see, and what we found when we get uh, trade files in, we're covering 70, 80% of the revenue at risk, which are scores, which are 96% predicto. You know, so, I mean, that's, and we're saying, just let us show you, you know, no obligation, no anything. Um, you know, it's a huge opportunity and uh, uh Unfortunately for us, we have to do this just to explain to people. Second thing I'd really like to make out, we are now coming up in our company with huge coverage on private companies, much bigger than we've ever done before. But the sweet spot that we're really good at is public companies. And there's a, a, there's a feeling out in the uh, corporate world and in the investment and finance world, look, public companies are safe. Private companies, you don't have to worry about uh, them as much. Uh, the public, uh, 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 private companies, excuse me, you got to worry a lot more about them than you do about the public companies. And what we have found is that for the most part, when it comes to dollars at risk, it's at the public companies overwhelming because they're large compared to private. But here's the second thing, which is really misunderstood. Public companies are much, much more leveraged than private companies. Why? Because they have certified financials. When they go into a bank or a lender, they've got five years of certified financials. So the lenders need that. Most private companies can't put together certified financials. So they're not going to get loans. Number two, public companies have stock. That's trading in the marketplace. So the lender says, well, you know, if the stock's there, they sell stock. Private companies don't have that. So they will never get as leveraged up as a public company. What's interesting is the risk at public companies 
is greater than the risk at private companies. One, because they're leveraged, and two, because they represent so much business. They're so big. When they get into trouble, we're talking about millions and billions of dollars of bad debt. We're the average small company, you know, what are they going to lose? You know, $150,000 total? The risk in dollars at public companies, and they're the ones who are leveraged. It's a, it's a total disconnect in the investment, finance, and credit markets. Total upside down. Up, you know, I got a mirror, and they're looking at it at the wrong end. It's incredible. I'll now shut up and let you go, Mike. I'm sorry to shoot off my mouth like that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you make you make obviously good points. Uh, you have a perspective on it. I think the only other thing I would say is, you know, obviously, if you haven't had discussions about what to do in situations where a particular counterparty starts to go bad on you, you know, what you're going to do as far as changing policy and having those things kind of procedurally or at least liturgically filled out. Uh, so that you have a clear path of action to take when you are confronted with it. That's something really good to have in your back pocket. And as we alluded to at the uh, you know, start, that often takes you know a lot more time than I think people expect, right? And you always think you're going to have enough time to address it, um, you know, before it happens. But as it starts to creep up, um, the potential for sort of a systematic snowball here, especially with the debt levels that we're talking about, where you know, inflation going up, interest rates potentially going up, you see large swaths of debt being impacted uh, en masse. And so when you have conditions like that, you always want to be prepared to a greater degree because you're not going to have, you know, one customer that goes bad on you at a time. Potential is to have many customers all going into distress at exactly the same time because it's tied to such a base rate. So I would just encourage everybody, if you haven't had those discussions yet, you know, obviously, I think CECL compliance was kind of pushed back with the uh, the pandemic, at least for U.S. public companies. Um, but and that's certainly something to keep in mind as far as, uh, you know, your policies and your, uh, your responses uh, at your fingertips, because it is much harder to implement those sorts of changes or figure them out uh, when you're you know, battling day to day uh, bad debts and write offs. Uh, much easier to do that when you have. Um, still waters, if you will. So. Yeah, if you have a system in place, because, um, you know, it helps you if you got a process. And, and you know, we're, we're, the name of our company is Credit Risk Monitor. We're monitoring it 24-7, and we run our risk score every night. It's 96% predictive, and we run it fresh every night. I mean, you can't get more current than that. And so that's a must-have. That's a must-have. And uh, so that you get prepared. You know, one of the interesting stories I remember, because I've been at this a long time now already, is I remember speaking to some credit manager, and he's saying, my God, you know, all of a sudden we got some really good orders came in. And when I started to look at it, I began to realize they're coming in from companies that were getting into credit trouble. So what was happening, our competitors were backing away from selling company X and our sales guys, uh, you know, were having a field day. And till we realized that because competitiveness, uh, 
Our competitors were walking away. How am I going to know that if I don't have great scores on that company? How am I going to pick that up if you're not looking at our uh, uh, payment data that we have? I mean, that's what we're designed to pick up. So, you know, sometimes it's important to understand uh, uh, why is business so good in a really bad time? And uh, it may well be that um, your guys are good or maybe they're not that good, but other people are taking a hike on that uh, on that sale. Let you guys win that sale. Very good point. Right. Uh, sometimes some of those signals are very hidden. Um, so I think with that, you know, we'll kind of wrap it up. Obviously, uh, we alluded to a future topic on uh, discussing some zombie com companies, uh, both domestic for the U.S. and some international. So we'll uh, we'll take that probably for our next topic. If you do happen to have any suggestions or uh, comments, again, we welcome your uh, your in your feedback, your uh, your insights to podcasts at creditriskmonitor.com. Uh, thank you for joining uh, Jerry and, my, and me uh, as we kind of covered a broad swath of topics on debt and inflation interest rates. But, you know, overall, um, definitely a lot of good fodder out there for long debate. Thank you guys for your time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And uh, check back in for some updates in the future. Thanks.